Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior Tomorrow Knots. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel Before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. I'm Nick. And I'm Hasten. And this is the final episode. Can you believe it? We're actually here in our 12-part series in which we'll be taking a deep dive into the Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure and budding cult classic. That's right. This is our final episode in this glorious 12-part deep dive in which we've been exploring all the little mysteries that hide in the margins of this wonderful movie. And today we're covering the runtime between one hour, 56 minutes and 55 seconds to two hours, nine minutes and 52 seconds, all the way to the end. We're exploring a tender denouement to this story and a sweeping montage that sends the movie off on a note of sublime hope. From last week, we've had Casey Newton and Frank Walker sitting underneath the most beautiful bioluminescent blue trees you've ever seen, looking out on the last remaining residents of Tomorrowland displaced with the loss of Governor Nix, wondering what's coming next. Frank asks, do you think it'll work? And Casey says... I guess we have to make it work. And we hear the voice of the future, Frank Walker, saying, So we're making it work. And this throws us into a wonderful little montage where they're reassembling, regrouping, getting ready to rebuild tomorrow. And what is the first vision we see, Haston, on this lovely little montage? Of course, it's Eddie Newton. He's still working at that table. Working on the spinny thing. We still don't know what that spinny thing is. He hadn't figured it out yet. It requires further attention, no doubt. And I think he's having some help from his son. This is our only glimpse, by the way, of those signature striped silly socks that apparently him and his daughter share that was so prominently discussed by the film's costumers in the press kit. And here they are there, some nice purple and white stripes, it appears, that match his outrageous dragon button-up t-shirt. Uh, the man has style. Oh, it's it's fantastic. So much character to throw at us right at the end of the movie. And what does he look in awe at? A look of Spielbergian awe crosses his face as he turns to an empty sidewalk to see a portal into what seems to be the future. And Haston, what do you notice about the Goliath robot in the background of this portal as Casey runs through it? What do you see? I noticed that he has a propeller on his head. Not only do I notice this wonderful propeller, which gives me visions of a locomotion that will take him all across Tomorrowland, soaring high above the sky, I see that the orange stripes have returned. That was signature to the initial version we saw in 64, who helped Frank complete the jetpack. And this makes me think our theory was correct. Orange striped Goliaths equal good. No striped bland monochrome Goliaths equal evil. I like how we see, you know, we still see the cracked and broken building from where the monitor fell. Things are being rebuilt. We don't know how much time may have passed, but I'm going to say that this is in the immediate aftermath of the events of the last scene because Casey is wearing the same clothes. Close to immediate. I'm sure, you know, Eddie Newton freaked out for maybe 24 to 48 hours after not hearing anything from his daughter, but clearly not freaked out enough to not be continuing to work on this mini thing. Exactly. And as Eddie Newton embraces his daughter, he's been so worried. He got that one voicemail from her, and I'm sure he's just been panicking ever since. Not so panicked that he isn't working on his spinning contraption, but we see the full emotion of his relief as he hugs her. And off to the side, we see 
that young Nate Newton who asked to come with Casey earlier, get his first glimpse of Tomorrowland. And he's wearing a t-shirt that says Snake River Pass. So between this and the t-shirt that father was wearing in the bed earlier in the film, I think we've got a family that likes to go camping and explore the world. These are some adventurous folks, the Newtons. Nothing can stop them. I do enjoy that you can indeed, out of focus in the background, see the spinny thing still spinning. So he hasn't at least undone the work that Casey did earlier in the film. As Eddie Newton takes a few steps towards Tomorrowland and we hear the narration saying, First order of business, get the door back open. Couldn't hurt to get a few experienced engineers over here. We now cut back to Tomorrowland into what appears to be the pin creation room. Silhouetted in the darkness, Frank pulls a cover off of the retired pin creation devices. He activates a touchscreen and we see the pin logo upon it. Uh, on the screen it says... Tracking initialized? And then opening. And then we see a nice acrylic engraved circuit board pattern with all of these wonderful 1984 edition Tomorrowland pins. Something big is about to happen. And the way that they describe it is that the party is about to be turned back on. Calling back to Frank's admonition to Casey. That the damn party got canceled. It's an invitation that never got sent out because the damn party got canceled. But now, under new management, Nix is gone and we're in the age of Newton and Walker. And the party is going to be back on. At the very end, when he touches the touchscreen, it says ready for delivery. And then there's all these little pin IDs that flash through. As has been pointed out by more observant viewers, the platen that brings out these Tomorrowland pins, is being propelled by these wheels, which are in fact inline roller skate wheels. So we know exactly what era this device was created in. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. I never thought about it from that perspective. Yeah, totally plays into that whole 80s theme. Absolutely. Another interesting note about this pin creation room out of focus in the background with a few other Tomorrowland collaborators, Casey appears for the only time in the film in her hoodie and red button-up shirt without her outer jacket on top of it. And this is the moment we can see that that light turquoise hoodie that she wears is in fact sleeveless. What a sense of style all these characters have. She must have inherited it from her deeply stylish father, Eddie Newton. Next. Put the party back on and print out some new invitations. And then we return to the bookend that started the film with George Clooney staring down the barrel. Any audience members who wondered what was he looking at? Was he looking at the audience? What is the reason for George Clooney's looming face? The answer is now going to be revealed. He's not talking to the audience. He is talking to an assembly of Athena-esque auto-animatronic children recruiters. In a white room, the new bright Bridgeway Plaza, calling to mind, Hasten, I think, the imagery of the end of the It's a Small World attraction. One of our little pet theories when the film came out, that we have a globe-trotting adventure that takes you all over the world, much like It's a Small World, and it ends in a giant white room filled with robotic children. What a beautiful parallel, and one that we know was completely unintentional and just the result of our own personal interpretation because when we asked Brad Bird about that parallel, he laughed heartily, threw his head back in a meme-worthy laugh and appreciated the observation, but had never crossed his mind, as happens so often with these things. I do love that even in this single, even in this single scene, 
there's a lot more greenery behind Casey as she's picking up the pin containers. You see that the generic bricks have been replaced with colorful uh, hexagonal bricks instead of all just being gray. Lots of nice small touches here, even though I wish we would have gotten to see more of today's Tomorrowland. Oh, I absolutely agree. Tomorrowland in 2014 under new management. I have no shortage of questions about what that world looks like. Which brings us to why we're here today. A year ago, it was all supposed to be over. We shouldn't even be here, but we are. It isn't hard to knock down a big evil building that's telling everybody that the world's gonna end. What is hard is figuring out what to build in its place. And we're gonna do that, can't do it alone. And of course, young Nate Newton is standing with his father, Eddie. Eddie, by the way, fully decked out in a Tomorrowland mechanics-style jumpsuit. Uh, and is it just me, Haston, or is Nate with his little bag strapped over himself looking a little bit like the robot recruiters? Does that boy think he's about to go out and give out Tomorrowland pins? I hope so. Not a job for human children, though. Much too dangerous. It must be audio animatronics trained in every form of martial arts known to man. Frank Walker, may I ask a question? Sure. The search parameters you've given us, while mathematically sound, are a bit undefined. Could you be more specific, please? And also due to the nature of Frank's little speech calling back to Athena as sort of the initial recruiter, having the child that has a question who raises his hand also be a British child that has a not dissimilar accent to Athena, I think dovetails into that really nicely and kind of sets the stage for us all to remember who we have just lost and who Frank is about to eulogize in a way. This scene, to a certain degree, is the only opportunity for Frank to speak to the lessons that he's learned in the film. I once told your predecessor that she was nothing but a combination of ones and zeros. I was wrong. She was much more than that. You are much more than that, too. So, go out there and do what she would have done. Find the ones who haven't given up. They're the future. We have Casey picking up one of the pin containers. There's a whole line of them. Just like the one Athena used earlier in the film. It, I find it very interesting that they continue to use the Plus U logo on top of those pin containers. It does seem that in a reflection of the thematic explorations taking place in this movie, Frank and Casey have elected to take inspiration from the past and rather than destroying Plus Ultra altogether, continuing the legacy and evolving it into a new, more inclusive, more representative organization, as we're about to see in the montage that follows this penultimate sequence. We find ourselves in a story that starts with an organization started by the most elite of the elite. Four elder Caucasian men at the top of a brass tower at the end of the 1800s decide to form this alliance. And for better or for worse, their own internal conflicts led to a broken future that our lead characters find once they've reached it. And so I think visually, from a cinematic perspective, there's nothing more profound than having the final moments of this story represent a contrast to that origin. So you have this organization, you had Casey all by herself alone in this field of wheat. And as I have said before, and will say many times again, that contrasting image of a group 
of diverse recruits standing in a field all together is about as visual of storytelling as you can get. It requires no words. We have seen these iconic images of Casey by herself. She's been propelling herself through the story, trying to figure out what is going on. And now she, as the new torchbearer of Tomorrowland, gets to open it up and invite in other dreamers from all over the world, from all different walks of life, not just the elite. But to me, the most profound contrast is in how working class all of these recruits are from all different corners of the world. These aren't just scientists, although there are scientists. These aren't just astronomers, although we do see an astronomer. They're representative of the arts, of the legal system, of the education system, of the infrastructural systems, and they represent everyone. In this moment, they are allowed to represent the sort of infinite possibility associated with the community values that our heroes represent against those isolationist, the individualist values of our villain who has now been defeated through the conjoined actions of those heroes. And so to me, these last few moments of the movie really sing. And as we know from talking to some of the filmmakers, the last montage of all of the recruits receiving their pins and then being seen together, jointly looking up in awe at the city of the future that so inspired Casey when she was alone, giving us this incredible hope for the future and the music just soaring, that never changed throughout the conception of this film. That last image was always the same. So when we talk about alternate versions of this ending, that never faltered. Their vision for that moment was always steadfast. It was the scenes that preceded it that tended to change. And so we do know about a few of them, but unfortunately, this is one of the lingering mysteries of Tomorrowland that we have really no clues as to what those penultimate scenes looked like. What we do know is that, of course, this bookend, with all of the recruits and Frank staring down the barrel of the camera, Those were part of the reshoots. So there was some kind of scene here before the recruits were sent out that was potentially somewhat like this scene, but we really have no idea what the content of that scene reflected. It was not included in the version of the shooting script that we received from Damon Lindelof that had the reshoots in mind. On the Blu-ray, there's an Easter egg, which includes the original deleted scene for the ending. Uh, And in that scene, you have Clooney, drive up in a Tesla. So I think given that he's in a Tesla, it's a great reference, but I also think that that indicates this is before the whole Chevy partnership. They pull up to 39A right at Cape Canaveral. They have synchronized watches watching the countdown, go to zero, and then nothing happens. They say something along the lines of like, we did it. The portal opens back up and we continue, presumably into some sequence that would have looked a little bit like the bookend that we have here, but we've never seen any footage nor read any description of what that in-between scene was because that scene at Cape Canaveral would not have been the scene immediately before the recruitment montage. There was something in between. We really don't know what was there. And perhaps one day there will be some light shed on that. But for now, we can only speculate. In the junior novelization, the scene of them looking out at Cape Canaveral describes Casey as having visited it every day for those remaining 58 days, hoping to get some glimpse of a sign that their actions had affected the future positively. But it wasn't until this moment of the countdown that they knew that they had successfully averted the apocalypse. I think it's a fun cerebral idea, but it might have been too abstract for the very end of a film. And certainly we have no idea 
contextually how it would have played with a scene after it that was not the scene that is in the movie now. So it's a really interesting curiosity and certainly a great visual of them standing in front of the launch platform and Frank smiling out in the open, no longer the grumpy curmudgeon that he's been for the duration of the film and meeting Casey's father for the first time. For the past 58 days, Casey Newton had been going out to the launch pad every night. She no longer went to dismantle equipment. Now she went and simply stood by the fence surrounding the launch pad and observed. Some nights, as the sun set and cast the area in orange and purple light, she could forget the images of destruction she'd seen in the Oracle. Other nights, it was all she saw. Sometimes she would take her father with her, hoping that in the right moment, she might be able to tell him what had happened. But she hadn't yet. On that night, as the sun dipped below the horizon and the sky lit up in a riot of color, Casey and her father pulled up to the fence as they had so often. Getting out of the car and following his daughter to the fence, Phil looked at the platform and then back at his daughter. You're not going to tell me why we keep coming out here, huh? He asked, teasing. Nope, Casey said, smiling. It wasn't the first time they had had this conversation, but she hoped it would be the last. You do realize it's cruel to bring a man back to the site of where he got fired, Phil pointed out. Casey nodded. She did know. But at least it's still here, she said, looking toward the platform. Hearing the sound of crunching gravel, Casey and her father turned and saw an old, dusty car approaching. It pulled up right next to the Newton's car, and the engine shut off. A moment later, the door opened, and out stepped Frank Walker. But this was not the Frank Walker Casey had first met back at the farmhouse. That Frank had been grouchy and disheveled. He had been hopeless, his heart hardened. This Frank had shaved and cleaned up, and his eyes were bright. He was more alive than Casey had ever seen him, and she couldn't help smiling. Good evening, Frank said, greeting the Newtons as if he had never met Casey before. Evening, they replied. Casey sensed her father's confusion. Who else but them would come all the way out there just to look at an empty launch pad? That's the platform, huh? Frank went on. Thought I heard they were taking it down. They were, Casey said, smiling. Guess something changed their minds. Frank nodded, a grin tugging at the corners of his mouth. He guessed something had. And speaking of something changing, he held up his arm, revealing a digital watch. A display flashed on it, counting down. 13, 12, 11, almost didn't get here in time. Casey raised her own arm. She too had a digital watch and it was perfectly synced with Frank's. Four, three, two, one, beep. Nothing happened. The birds kept chirping. The sun kept setting. The breeze kept blowing. It was perfectly peaceful. The apocalypse hadn't happened. Fate had been rewritten. We made it, Casey said. She beamed at him, and he beamed back at her. Looking back and forth between the two, Phil raised an eyebrow. I'm sorry, he said, confused. Do you two know each other? As a matter of fact, sir, we do. Your daughter saved my life. Extending his hand, Frank Walker introduced himself. Phil shook his head, still unsure of what was going on. How would Casey save that man's life? When had she saved that man's life, and why was he there now? Very aware of the millions of thoughts probably running through Phil Newton's head at that moment, Frank got to the point. Word on the street is, you're a NASA engineer. 
Phil nodded. Well, sir, your daughter and I have been kicking around some ideas for a new project. We weren't exactly sure things were going to work out, but now that they have, we sure could use some help. Phil looked at his daughter, who was smiling from ear to ear. He had no idea what the man was talking about, but there was something infectious in Casey's obvious excitement. So when Frank asked him if he wanted a job, he simply said yes. Beside him, Casey clapped her hands together. This was it, the beginning of a new adventure. Because Frank and Casey were going to rebuild Tomorrowland into the world it had been, the world it should have been. They were going to find the best and the brightest minds from all over the world, young minds full of hope like Casey's. And just as Athena had done, they were going to recruit them. Casey's costume in this last scene is also very interesting. It is layered in the same way as her main costume from the film was, but the colors are much more in line with what Frank is wearing here, which is sort of these lighter, not quite pastel, but it's a little bit more of a refined color palette. We've got these light tans, light blues, sort of peach reds, and it's much more evocative of the type of future that I think of when I uh, consider the set design of something like Star Trek The Next Generation with the plush carpet walls and the sort of wonderful beige, calming, comfortable colors that I associate with that. Well, Miss Newton, you want to tell our new recruiters what they're looking for? Dreamers. We are looking for dreamers. Anyone who will feed the right wolf. cases are handed out to all the recruits who are about to head into the real world from Tomorrowland. And Frank gives them his little pep talk, which is for the audience, of course, that eulogy for Athena and how he was so very wrong to think that she was simply the ones and zeros represented by her programming and that she was very much more than that as they are and that they needed to go out and look for the ones who haven't given up because they're the future. And Haston, I thought it might be nice for us to spend some time talking individually about those 11 recruits that we see in this wonderful recruitment montage. The 11 folks who in the canon of this film receive their pins so prominently in the foreground, obviously there's many more in the background of the wheat field that we don't get to see up close, but for these 11 featured extras, let's break them down one at a time. The first recruit we see is, of course, the Tokyo street guitar busker, who is indeed credited in the credits for the film as guitar player played by Takeyuki Oki. He is on Instagram if you'd like to look him up, and he's proud enough of his inclusion in the film that his Instagram bio includes the phrase Tomorrowland guitar player. This single shot, which is supposed to be in Tokyo, actually takes place in Robson Square, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So the next time you visit Robson Square, take a look for those steps and see if you see any glimpses of Tokyo. 
And if you love the beautiful sort of cobbled together look of that electric guitar, it was made specially for the production by a custom guitar maker by the name of Kurt Schoen. We'll link to his website in the show notes, although we must warn you, if you reach out to him asking for an exact replica of the one that he made in the film, he is unfortunately contractually unable to do that, as I have found personally. And Disney purchased that guitar from him outright. So we must assume that it remains still in the Disney archives to this day. And who knows, it just might show up in another Disney production someday. Okay, and then in the second scene, we get a great opening shot of an automated machine cutting a clay body model of a brand new car. Of course, this is our product placement tie-in scene where we see the development process of the now discontinued Chevy Volt, where we have the automotive designer. She is credited as the GM plant worker, Natasha Davidson. And for our location station, this is, of course, the General Motors Design Studio in North Hollywood, California. Well, that's not too far from the Tomorrowland Times headquarters. Perhaps we should head on down, knock on the door, and see if we can take some selfies in the middle of their design plant. (laughs) Hey, maybe they even have a little plaque. We don't know. They could have a little plaque up that says this location featured in Tomorrowland. I'm going to guess a no on that, but anything's possible. The busker in the previous shot found his pin in a guitar case, of course. She finds hers among all of these material swatches. Now, what's interesting about this scene, too, is that this is not exactly how it played out as it was written in the screenplay. In the screenplay, she was supposed to receive a box from a delivery man, specifically a FedEx delivery man. And she was supposed to open it up and turn it over and see that nothing but peanuts fell out. And then she would hear the pin fall to the ground. I think this might give us our biggest clue yet as to what that pre-reshoot penultimate scene may have been like, Haston. Do you get the sense that the inclusion of all of these adult delivery persons in the individual recruitment moments may indicate that the child recruiters echoing the image of Athena as a young girl audio animatronic might not have been the original intention for that scene. It is possible that Casey and Frank may have been addressing a room of adult recruits. We can't possibly say. But personally, for me, I enjoy that image of the assembled Athena 2.0 so much that any level of discomfort with the opening is more than worth it to have the version of the finale that we got in the end, which I think is heartwarming and wonderful. In the African savannah, a conservationist gazes out through binoculars, then opens a notebook on the bonnet of his Land Rover. He flips through sketches of elephants and finds a pin tucked in between the pages. And then we cut straight to an adventurer looking through his binoculars. This is our African savannah conservationist, according to the descriptive audio, which you can listen to on the Blu-ray, which is so wonderful, describing the movie as you're watching it for the visually impaired. I highly recommend it for any fan. But this is an uncredited role that you can see on IMDb being self-submitted as the Game Warden, played by Robin T. Rose. And if you click through to his headshot, this is absolutely Robin T. Rose. And I will encourage all of our listeners to please visit Robin T. Rose on Twitter. He has only tweeted like two times in 2018. I love this. Even though he's only tweeted two times, his handle is at Robin T. Fitness. So I'm going to assume that Robin is also a fitness instructor in addition to a wonderful actor. And his profile photo is this dynamic shirtless portrait of him seemingly brandishing a sword with his bulging muscles exposed. Robin is a fit fellow, and I'd say that that game warden's got some game. (laughs) 
So he brings down his binoculars and he goes back to the hood of his Defender and he flips open this blue Explorer log book. And of course, inside he turns the page and we see the Tomorrowland pin. But this observation log, I've tried to locate this particular model of observation log with this blue bound cover and the particular template of the pages that we see here. So if any of our listeners own one of these and can tell us what the company make of it is, we'd love to add this to the Tomorrowland Times collection. So we're putting out our feelers. If anyone can locate this observation log, drop us a line. Then we cut to Haiti, which is not Haiti at all in another installment of the location station here. Hasten, we're going back to the Canadian motion picture backlot. Oh, fantastic. That's the place where they shot the blast from the past scenes. Who knew that right around the corner you could have a depiction of Haiti and a young woman planting a sapling on a street corner. Now, she is credited as Haitian woman, played by Lillianne Leila Juma. And she finds her pin hidden in the soil of the tree that she's planting. So we've got a sort of arborealist angle to this particular recruit, which I think is a great transition from the sort of animal rights angle that we had with the conservationists before. So I love the throws that you experience conceptually. There is this blend. To me, this isn't a random assembly of recruits. There is some kind of family resemblance values that go through, uh, at least in terms of their occupations, their interests, the world issues that they each represent. An interesting note in the Haiti sequence here, originally in the screenplay, this was not someone planting a tree. This was a young woman holding blueprints for an artfully designed, modestly sized experimental house. And she's giving final instructions to a group of laborers who are about to install solar panels. So as we had the windmill farm also here reflected in the screenplay, this would have been a scene about solar power. And we also get another glimpse here of this pre-Athena children recruiter, uh, which was a man in a Hawaiian shirt, brushes past her as the young woman turns to a toolbox to grab a hammer and sees a Tomorrowland pin sitting next to it. Now, how did that get there? So with all of these mentions of perhaps adult recruiters, I think it is safe to say that the invention of the child automatons for the finale was indeed one done for the reshoots and not for the original conception of this finale. And... As before, I'm so relieved that we eventually got there because to me, it sets the perfect tone for the finale. But here's a twist. What if all of these men who were dropping off these pins and whatever, what if they weren't all of these? What if they were one guy? What if they were Frank Walker? Haston, you just blew my mind. Frank Walker in a Hawaiian shirt. Frank Walker in a trench coat. Where in the world is John Francis Walker? It would have been more like Frank Walker as Nick Fury. But you know what? That might not be the end of that idea because Disney has announced a streaming series by the fantastic Ronald D. Moore about the Society of Explorers and Adventurers. And I hope he is fully aware of how perfect a post credit sequence on the season finale would be of a portal opening up and George Clooney stepping out of it to recruit one of the adventurers on that series. I'm crossing my fingers for that one. A judge finds a pin amongst her case notes, and a teenage street artist finds one amongst her chalks. And now cutting to next, we have our Hong Kong judge, which unfortunately we do not know the performer of, but we do pull into the location station once again, and we know this was shot at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Not a courtroom at all, the Vancouver Art Gallery. I've always loved the expression on this Hong Kong judge's face, so if anyone listening out there knows what performer 
uh, played this particular role, please do write in. I would love to know. It's really unfortunate that only about half of these recruits have been identified. And I would love to have a sort of compendium of who played each of them live on the Tomorrowland Times website at some point. So this is a little bit of an area of ongoing research because this judge finds the pin in her case notes. And then we have what the audio description describes as a teen street artist who is working in chalks, doing a little bit of a mural on a sidewalk, which depicts three children uh, presumably bathing in a giant clamshell. So I'm not personally sure of the potential relevance of that image to the Tomorrowland thematic structure. But if anyone listening has any theories, I'd certainly love to hear them. And then we see that same transition from the chalk artist to another person working with chalk in this same thematic duality of art and now science, which cuts to a university professor using his chalk to write down various math equations. I want to take a moment to really compliment these beauty shots on the pins. The props are extremely small. These pins are only one inch in diameter. So getting these really tight close-ups, they must have been so specific in how they staged these. And they're all just so compositionally expressive in the placement from scene to scene. And next up, another working class citizen. We have a windmill technician who, for the first time in this montage, actually has the pin pinned to something inside of his work briefcase. Which may indeed be the first instance of this 1984 version of the pin ever actually being used as a pin, because as we all know, Casey's version had no pin on the pin back of its pin. <laughs> so this man is a real trailblazer when it comes to Tomorrowland pins. <laughs> Now, much like the Hong Kong judge, this windmill technician and the university professor and the teen chalk artist before them, all of these performers are unknown. So please do, if any of you recognize or have any connection to any of the extras that appeared in these scenes, please do reach out and let us know. We would love to know who they are and maybe even invite them onto the show to tell us their story. A workman at the wind farm finds one in his toolbox and a ballerina finds one pinned to the ribbon of her ballet shoe. From one pin to another. Now we have our ballerina who, taking a rest, finds the pin pinned to the strap of her ballet shoe. And we do know, even though she is uncredited, thanks to a self-submitted credit on IMDb, that this ballerina is played by Alexandria Kay. And what a fantastic little cameo to have on your resume. The cuts start to get a little bit more quick here. We spent a little bit more time with the earliest recruits in this montage, but now we're just getting these individual shots that are focusing more on the surprising placement of the pins to set up the rapid cuts of the hands moving in that lead us into the final shot. And here we have a Sikh astronomer that finds his pin underneath one of his telescope eyepieces. And behind him, you can see that large telescope, which, pulling into our final location station of the series... We have the Gordon McMillan Southam Observatory, of course, in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Another stop on our great Canadian Tomorrowland road trip, no doubt. The 11th and final recruit we only get a brief moment with, this backpacker in the middle of what seems to be a rainforest, finding the Tomorrowland pin on this elevated tree stump, reaching in. And it is her reach that propels us into that rapid cut of all of the hands that we've just met now reaching in to touch, because we know what happens when you touch these Tomorrowland pins. The movie has thoroughly established that. And then boom, 
there are the hands of the first recruit we met, the Tokyo guitarist, picking up the pin. Oh, and when he touches it, the wheat appears around him. This is a pretty miraculous visual effects transition here because this shot could not have been done in the moment. And so there is a transition occurring here when we pull up from that grab into him peeking out over this view of all of these people. And I think only those in the deep background are digital additions. Everyone you're seeing in the foreground, in the midground, was actually in that field on that day. And if you read some of the behind the scenes documentation, you'll know that in order to stage this shot so that there weren't tracks through the pristine wheat field, they had to carefully walk out in order to frame the shot and light the shot with these individual place markers to tell each extra where they would stand because they didn't want people walking back and forth while they were doing their setups. And so they had those. And then at the last minute, when they were ready to roll, they brought everybody in and they all did their little reactions. And it's just wonderful to look through moment to moment and see everyone's reactions as that camera cranes around them into the final shot, revealing Tomorrowland on the horizon. It's such a glorious final shot and the music is so wonderful. Michael Giacchino is giving us everything that he's got to sum up the tonality that we're going to be leaving this movie with. And for me, it was nothing but successful. I've heard quite a lot of praise, even from those who did not enjoy the rest of the film for this final moment as being an inspiring one that instilled this incredible sense of hope and optimism for the future. And those last moments are so important to a film. And I think that if there was forgiveness on behalf of the audience for some of the things that they did not like about the film, a lot of it stemmed from these last images that are so powerful. And if anyone has watched my Land of Tomorrow Myth from Today video essay, they're mythic images. We're playing with the images of pure modern myth right here when we see disparate people from all over the world. And it's not just that they look different. I don't want to speak too much to the criticisms this film received, but there was one critic in particular who really had it out for this movie. He compared this moment to a community college brochure. And to me, I think that's such a belittlement of what we're seeing here, because it's not just about the fact that these people look different. It's about their differences in profession. It's about their differences in class. It's about the differences in the conduct of their lives and the idea that these are the people that need to come together. It's not the guys slapped on the side of the building. It's not Vern. It's not Edison. It's not Eiffel. It's not Tesla. It is these normal people, just like those watching the film. You are needed to build the future. We are all needed. And these people are our surrogates. These people are our representatives, showing that it isn't just who you would expect. It's not just those who are interested in science, although of course we need those people. Every walk of life is important to building our future. We want to build one that includes all of these people. And the vision of tomorrow up until this point didn't quite include them, but here it does. And I think that's just powerful visual storytelling on display. And you don't need dialogue to undercut that. The movie is speaking for itself here. And I think this is maybe one of the most mature moments that Brad Bird has displayed as a filmmaker because it's total confidence in the undertone 
and the subtext of what he's saying here. And yeah, that leads you open to misinterpretation. And I still, to this day, so admire the boldness of his willingness to be misinterpreted in order to tell his story in the way he wants to tell it. And this, to me, is the crowning moment of that. And it's just such a relief to have the perfect goodbye to a movie that you and I connected with so deeply already, but to have the perfect button, the perfect period on the end of a sentence, and I'd say not even a period, the perfect exclamation point. With the final thud and cut to black of Michael Giacchino's score, we go into a beautifully animated ending credits sequence designed again by you and company who did the opening credits for the film. I love these credits, Aston. These credits are very, you know, it's very Horizons at Epcot. It is a history of the future with so many great little references and Easter eggs and you know, things tying all the Disney pieces together, things tying the World's Fair connection pieces together. Let's just go through it scene by scene, right? So we, of course, start out on the atom where everything begins, the smallest object possible. And as it zooms out, we get a beautiful, beautiful view of a balloon from around the world in 80 days. Yes, some kind of airship Calling back to our Jules Verne, founder of Plus Ultra, of course. Visions of the future indeed, one of our finest futurists. Pulling back into another sort of foot-pedaled airship passing by the Eiffel Tower, taking us, of course, to Gustav Eiffel. Absolutely. From there, we have a transition with our Around the World in 80 Days airship right into the an Art Deco future. Oh, yes. This one calls to mind the Fritz Lang Metropolis film where we have biplanes passing by these Art Deco skyscrapers. Such a wonderful 1920s science fiction reflection here. And this is when we really start to get some of those bright colors, the the pale oranges and the vivid turquoise, so wonderfully designed. And we should speak about some of the textures used here because there is a sort of halftone patterned uh, grain-like texture being applied to these 3D models, specifically because when we talked to Brad Bird, he revealed they were inspired both in color composition design and here texture by all of those wonderful screen-printed attraction posters, both of the World's Fair and of Disneyland. Absolutely. And then we cut forward, and what do we have an opening shot of? Well, it's a Tomorrowland, but potentially a Tomorrowland of the 30s, because sitting right in the middle is, of course, the Trilon and Perisphere from the 1939 New York World's Fair. Some great details in this. I love the plane that has the really long wings. Uh, And you also have a fun kind of nod to the Art Deco design of the first Disneyland monorails with that great bubble top, those original Mark I Alweg monorails, which were a little early, but definitely play into that same design ethos as the 1939 World's Fair. Correct me if I'm wrong, Haston, but do you think that these cars running through these clear tubes may indeed be a reference to the Ford Magic Skyway attraction? Oh, absolutely. I was about to get to that. The very next scene, we, of course, have... We're moving to a much more mid-century future with great uh, nods to Magic Highway USA. And my personal favorite nod in this scene is right towards the end when April Webster and Alyssa Weinsberg, the two casting directors, appear. On the left, you have the design of the topper of the Tomorrowland Terrace restaurant at Disneyland of the stage that rises up. 
Oh, how fantastic. An icon for anyone who's visited Disneyland's Tomorrowland. Absolutely. I love that it was restored back to its original glory about 10 years ago. And it's what the new entrance of Tomorrowland at Disneyland is going to be based off. It's just just fantastic. From the ground, we tilt up with a young Frank Walker in his jetpack in animated form, of course, passing up into George Clooney's pre-title credit. Yes. And then from here, we cut to the Tomorrowland logo. And that pulls back into a more modern day vision of the future, I think was appropriate to say. We've got the swooping arches and the monitor designs that we see reflected in the film itself. And there's a little Casey Newton and the wind tosses her hat off because, you know, she's let go of that hat. We've seen the film. Tiny little Athena joins her as we're swooping in and out of these fantastic arches, jetpack people flying all over the place. And of course, we have a couple of subtle, we have one subtle Disney reference in the background. Of course, you can see Spaceship Earth in the background. Oh, yes. Space Mountain might be trying to pull focus from everybody, but anyone who loves futurism with Disney sees that Spaceship Earth geodesic sphere and their heart soars, one of the greatest attractions of all time. Then we return to the Atom, of course, which turns into the 1964 version of the Tomorrowland pin. And there's this wonderful animation of each pin connecting with a thin line into a gigantic web of dreamers across the globe, including both the 1964 and 1984 designs for the pins. So a little of the past in hand with the present. Reflecting again that thematic statement of being inspired by the past, taking your inspiration from it, but not falling victim to it, and still dreaming of an evolution of those ideas, bringing them into the modern day through new, more inclusive, more community-based values. What could better illustrate that than this connected web of tiny Tomorrowland pins representing the dreamers who wear them, turning into a map of the earth itself, spanning the entire globe, no one left out. And then we move into our traditional credits, and there are a few fun ones in here, so I thought it might be fun to watch the credits and call out some of those names that we notice. In our first episode, we talked about the beefy cop. On a musical note here, there is a track from the film that occurs while Casey is talking on the phone to her father that was not included on the official soundtrack, nor indeed on the leaked recording sessions. So even though it's not the full version of the track, and it is pitched slightly differently here, this is our only taste of that particular piece of music for the film right here in the credits music. Of course, as we had with our conversation with Brad Bird, when we talked to him about designing the Plus Ultra logo, he didn't realize he had destroyed his own canon in the credits by mentioning that he had designed both that logo and the Tomorrowland logo. Yes, indeed. He didn't think back to that 1952 box, the illusion of which had been preserved for so very long. And having a little credit in here that says Plus Ultra Logo Designed by Bradbird, which reaches all the way back to the supposedly authentic 1952 box, whose label was stamped with that Plus Ultra Logo. So 
presumably if the fiction of that object was true, there would be no interest in defacing it with this logo invented by Brad Bird so many years later. And he was a little bit embarrassed to have heard that. But I think by that time, anyone who had really been paying attention to the fiction of the 1952 box already knew that it was curated by the production as a way of describing its inspirations. But there was a little bit of trepidation because even though the fans may have uncovered that knowledge, there were still a few executives at Disney who thought that box was real. Damon and Jeff could do refrigerator boxes. They could, they could do the biggest box ever yeah. and have fun and spin theories and do that forever. I'm just sitting there going, I'm never going to be able to pull this off. I'm, I'm going to be the guy that blows everything that you do by saying the wrong thing that shatters whatever illusion you're trying to do. And I'm just saying, can I... I'm just going to make the movie, okay? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. guys figure out this alternate universe and, oh and you know, man, now I feel terrible. No, I feel like it's, the terrible egotist. No, no, no. You must put the day design in the Plus Ultra logo. And then of course, later in the credits, we get another interesting reference to a deleted scene, right? Obviously, if you have the Disney Movies Anywhere, or as it's now called, just Movies Anywhere, uh, special credit scenes where they shot on location at the Carousel of Progress, we see in the credits, there's a special thanks to the Walt Disney World Resort, even though those scenes that were filmed there never appeared in the final film. Indeed, and not many of the deleted performers got the same respect because a lot of them did not warrant mention in the credits, and you'll have to go to IMDb to see them. And as I was researching for our recruits, I noticed that that mysterious economy teacher that was not included in the montage but was in the screenplay and we weren't sure if it was filmed indeed was because both the teacher performer and some of the background students listed themselves on imdb so somewhere out there there is indeed footage of casey in her economy class as part of that escalating montage in the casey versus zeitgeist scene Anyone who's dedicated to sitting through the credits of modern films knows that there's very rarely one special effects company that works on any major blockbuster, and this movie is no exception. ILM was not the only company that worked on it, and you can see some of the other collaborators listed here. A movie of this size with as many special effects shots as it has really can't do it under one roof anymore. In the old days, that was possible. The movies did not have as many shots. This one has invisible special effects work throughout, not just the big banner Tomorrowland future moments, but everywhere in the movie. In addition to thanking the Walt Disney World Resort, I do love that when the credits show filmed on location, the final location listed is indeed Tomorrowland itself, which may play into some of the young folks that write into our podcast asking if the Plus Ultra Society is a real secret society. And if you're listening here, I hope that we've made it clear that Plus Ultra was a fictional organization created by Damon Lindelof, Jeff Jensen, and eventually Brad Bird when he joined the project specifically for this film. And if you would like to feel the belonging of such an intriguing society, I do suggest you build it yourself. And if you're just asking for my advice, maybe don't make it a secret. Just make it a conglomeration of people. Secret societies often have bad habits. They licensed a few IMAX films, probably for use in their doomsday montages, perhaps on the news reports. In addition to eBay Incorporated, of course, we know prominently, we did a whole episode regarding its inclusion in the film. 
and uh, even the Getty Images. You can't make a movie without crediting Getty Images these days. Of course, you've got elements that were courtesy of Sony Entertainment America was, of course, the PSP. Oh, how can we forget the PSP? Absolutely. Played by with both our young Nate Newton. And the NASA security guard sitting in his shack, who sadly, I think, still lost his job. Still feel bad for him. That was early in the film and we're in the credits and I'm still thinking about that guy. Of course, elements from your life and Star Trek, courtesy of CBS Television Studios. Can't say I remember where exactly that would be in reference to, but I'm going to say those are probably clearances reflective of the contents of the Blast from the Past store more than anything. I don't think there was any actual footage of Star Trek shown in the movie, although I'm open to being proven wrong there. Well, same thing with the Iron Giant, right? Like there was an Iron Giant figure in the Blast from the Past store, but definitely no clips or anything else. Conversely, however, I think it's worth mentioning that when Brad Bird went back to do his sort of director's cut restored version re-release of the Iron Giant, he included a little bit of a Tomorrowland reference in there, which is when Hogarth is watching television and then the robot's hand sneaks up behind him, he used to be watching something else, but now he's watching the Disneyland TV show. And the specific moment they're showing is the Tomorrowland logo opening, which became the 1952 box film here. So a little bit of a retroactive reference there. In the final logos at the bottom of the film credits, which show us obviously the Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision logos, which this film, as we've said before, is the very first Dolby Vision high dynamic range theatrical release of all time. And hopefully we have a home video release that allows us to watch the movie once again in Dolby Vision. That has yet to happen. We also get a little bit of text that says prints by Photochem, which means the actual release prints for the film. So even though a lot of theaters have switched over to digital projection, some still show movies on 35 millimeter. And indeed, a few of them were struck for this film. I was lucky enough to go out to a second run theater and see Tomorrowland projected in 35 millimeter. And, you know, there are collectors of those prints out there and they don't always end up back with the studio. So if any of our projectionist listeners have held on to a 35 millimeter print of Tomorrowland, we would love to make you an offer on that. And then, of course, the fun little button on the end of the credits themselves. After the words distributed by Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures, we see a floating Tomorrowland pin, seemingly a static image. But then a hand reaches into frame, touches the pin. There's a flash, and we see the final Disney Pictures logo before fading to black. And the film is officially over. Well, I got to say, Nick, that this has been quite the 12-week adventure that we've gone on together, exploring every little nook and cranny and detail that Tomorrowland has to offer. Hasten, thank you so much for joining me on this little adventure, and thanks to everyone for listening along. This has been so wonderful, and I thought before we leave, we should just talk about how we thought we did and what's next. Uh, For me personally, even though we've had 12 some odd hours to talk about this movie, every week that we sit down to talk about it, I felt this immense pressure, this immense weight on my shoulders to be comprehensive in our discussion, to somehow be the last word on all of these scenes. But I quickly realized how impossible that was. This conversation that we've had over these past 12 weeks leading up to the sixth anniversary of Tomorrowland's release 
it really is just our conversation occurring in this moment. What are the aspects of the story that have stuck with us from when we originally saw it and what rings true to us now? And so there will be more for us to say going forward on this film. I don't think it will be in such a structured fashion in terms of one episode a week discussing a very particular sequential portion of the film, but rather when an idea occurs to us that seems to be worthy of its own episode, we do a one-off individual release. So moving forward, what's next? This show will continue. It just won't be on that normal schedule. It won't drop on the same day. It won't be weekly. Whenever we have an episode worth releasing, whenever we have something worth talking about, we will come back together and record one for all of our fine listeners who we are so grateful to for joining us on this adventure. I think what's been a lot of fun about this experience for me, not just the last 12 weeks, but everything is, you know, uh, taking a film that I absolutely love, adore and dear, and really, you know, looking at those minute details, realizing how much there is to tease out. I mean, I'll be the first to admit that when we walked out of the Chinese after seeing it for the first time, I went, whoa, that wasn't what I was expecting. And like other things, my brain hadn't fully processed it yet, even on the second, third and fourth viewings. And I think now, you know, we're just about to cross this threshold where, you know, people are about to enjoy this film for the first time who had never seen it before, who will see it pop up on their Disney Plus carousel of now available. Right. And, you know, I hope I hope people develop their own relationship with this film. I hope they find the, the, the backstory that we have so deeply and tried to keep in the archives. I hope they find, you know, references to our little arg that, you know, we made many years back. I think that a, a new chapter of fans is about to open up for this film. And I'm very excited to see not only what they think about it, but how they engage with it and how they enjoy, you know, what story it brings to the table. And I was saying, Nick, there is still one thing that we absolutely need to do a podcast on. We absolutely need to do an episode on Before Tomorrowland, the book. It's an element that we, that we have not explored, I think, in any sort of depth and detail. And I think it would be a lot of fun to do maybe, you know, do kind of a virtual book club and read a couple chapters and talk about it and read a couple more chapters. Because personally, I haven't, I haven't visited the book since the film came out. I think it would be a lot of fun to sit down, deep dive and take a look at it again. Absolutely. I think without actually committing to announcing a release date, it's very safe to say that the next extended series of this podcast will absolutely be a Before Tomorrowland book club. We won't necessarily do one chapter per episode. We'll probably choose uh, a grouping of chapters and discuss their contents. But you're absolutely right. It is such a foundational text for this fandom, and perhaps one that fans have not had an occasion necessarily to look back at. And so I think this is the perfect venue for us to come together and discuss all of the wonderful storytelling that takes place in that book, which was co-authored by Jeff Jensen and Jonathan Case, who is a fantastic comic book illustrator and writer in his own right. So there is a lot to talk about there. There are so many parallels, even some that uh, some of our listeners have written in to discuss, and we will have a much more expanded venue for that uh, in the future, no question. And I'm, so gl I'm also glad that you mentioned those who will discover this film in its next streaming chapter of life. And indeed, as much as we wanted to make this podcast, both for ourselves and for the current fans, there was a part of me that saw us making this series as 
planting the flag in the sand for those fans who have yet to come and having a resource for them to look back at and say, okay, there's already a discussion happening about this movie and it's been happening for quite a while. So absolutely. I see this as a forward looking effort, you know, as much as we discuss the film off the air, this is a way for us to go on record and have that be an invitation into the fandom for those who haven't discovered it yet. And as a way of making it a little bit easier for those future fans to find our podcast, it has come to my attention that it is helpful for our listeners to rate and review the podcasts on particularly the Apple Podcasts platform, which is where most of our listenership comes from. I thought a great way to do that would be to read on the air the couple of reviews that we've already received with a pledge that if you leave a review, we'll go ahead and read it on the air for you. Our first Apple podcast review came from SmellyCat194 all the way back on May 22nd, 2020, when we had our initial Speculating Futures Past look back at The Optimist. SmellyCat194 writes, So awesome reliving The Optimist and anticipation of Tomorrowland. The podcast is so well produced, just like every Tomorrowland Times production. Looking forward to future episodes. I'm so curious about what Nick has planned for the 10th anniversary. Well, thank you so much, Smelly Cat. That is a very complimentary message, and I appreciate that you you. feel that what we put out into the world is uh, well polished. We do our best. We're still learning ourselves about this new platform, so there's going to be some rough patches here and there, but thanks for sticking with us. And as for the 10th anniversary. It's a little bit too early for us to say for sure, because certain things haven't been locked down. But let's just say that our concept for the 10th anniversary is something that will transcend just a digital experience and perhaps even be a way for the most dedicated of fans to gather together in person. And of course, our next review is from Love Pirate, longtime friend here. He says, dreamers stick together. Excellent stuff as always from Nick at Tomorrowland Times. I want to say, apparently I don't exist. No, I'm just kidding. To clarify for our listeners, this was after the first episode, which Haston had not yet joined us for. So That's true. I'm sure That's true. I'm sure this compliment applies to you as well, Haston. Don't worry. I absolutely. Really enjoyed the first episode, diving into the first chunk of the film, and I can't wait to see what he brings us going forward. Well, now we're at the end, and hopefully, Love Pirate, you've enjoyed what we've presented the last 12 weeks. Our third and final review is from Jonathan Lomlop titled Great for Fans of the Movie. This podcast is fantastic. The hosts absolutely know almost every detail in the film. It's almost shocking. I have learned so much about this completely underrated movie from this podcast. Keep up the great work. Can't wait for the finale of the scene breakdowns. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, really appreciate it, Jonathan. I hope you enjoyed the finale, and I hope that you also enjoyed us reading your message on air without warning. So we will do our best to keep up the work and... I'm glad that we could uh, shed some light on some corners of the film, but I hope we've also described adequately how we do not know every detail of the film. And there are still these lingering mysteries that if we want to get an answer, it's going to take the collective research of all Tomorrowland fans to figure out who some of these recruits are and also what some of these moments that we didn't get to see contained. There's so many great details to still uncover that I can see a rich, thriving fandom for many years to come for this film. As always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at The Tomorrow Time or send us an email at press at tomorrowlandtimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S at tomorrowlandtimes.com. We want to thank everyone for joining us for the last 12 weeks. And for visiting Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there is always a place where dreamers Dreamers can stick together. together.
All right, Haston, without thinking about it, who's your favorite recruit? The backpacker. The backpacker is honestly one of my favorites because I think we get so little with her. There's a lot of, there's an air of mystery in my mind. But unfortunately, I might be biased by his Twitter image. I have got to go <laughs> with the conservationist in the African savanna. This guy clearly has a story to tell. <laughs> 